gotta do what I gotta do. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 3 of the MMA Rundown. My name is Ben Gordon, and this week we're going to be discussing a lot of stuff based around UFC Fortaleza. Uh, we're going to be going over the results, going over some other stories that popped up, including Vitor Belfort talking about having a League of Legends or a Legends division for him to continue fighting if he's not going to retire in July or in, uh, I believe, June in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, a lot of other things coming up, we'll get to all that. But for starters, let's talk about the UFC Fight Night 106, UFC Fortaleza card in Brazil. Um, quickly, I'll go over all the results, just get a quick little comment on all of them. The main three fights, the Barboza fight, the Shogun fight, and the Vitor Belfort versus Kelvin fight, will each have their own segments. I'll discuss those more in depth at that point. But from the bottom of the card up, the first fight of the night was Paulo Boracinha versus Gareth McClellan. Now, Boracinha, he had fought on, I believe it was Season 3 of the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. Didn't have a great showing there. Fought more on the regional circuit out in Brazil. Looked really impressive. Was getting a lot of first-round finishes. So this was his first shot in the UFC. And man, did he look good. He was going against Gareth McClellan, who kind of has like a brawling style to him. Not exactly the most technical guy. But Boracinha pressured him, put him up against the fence, and was just banging on him. And there wasn't much that McClellan could do to get him off him. And... Not long after he got the finish, so really impressive look for him. I'd like to see him fight against uh, a guy who's a really good counter striker, another guy who pressures well, and kind of see how he matches that. Because obviously he can pressure fight really well. It'll be interesting to see if someone makes him back up, or if he fights someone who's really good at guys who come forward, how he'd handle that. So I feel like there's a lot of potential for him. I'd like to see more from him. Uh, next fight on the card was Jeremy Kennedy versus Honey Jason. Now Jeremy Kennedy was a highly touted prospect out of Canada. Um, in his first fight, he looked alright, but... It's one of those things where a lot of times when guys come into the UFC undefeated, you hear a lot of great things about them, and you got to see them fight against more established UFC guys to see how good they are. I was really impressed with Kennedy. Now, yes, in the second round, he did get caught with that flying double knee by Honey Jason, although I believe the initial knee missed, but the second knee is the one that caught him and dropped him. But great job by him to kind of recover. Obviously, Honey Jason's a higher rank in jiu-jitsu than him, but it appears as though Kennedy does a lot of nogi and is really good at the MMA side of grappling. So to be in a position where you're rocked, you got a guy who's a higher rank on top of you. You got the whole crowd saying you're going to die after you just got drilled with a knee to maintain composure. I mean, he did pretty good after that point in the round after he was able to get up. And then obviously in the third round, he won that, won the first round as well. I like what I've seen out of Jeremy Kenny. I think he's going to be a very tough guy to beat. Honey Jason hasn't had a win since 2014 in the UFC. He's a very talented fighter. It's not like he's a bad fighter, but he's losing a lot of close fights or fights where he's having his moments, but he's not getting the finish. So for him, I'm not sure if he's going to be kept around, if they're going to let him go and hope that he gets some more wins on the regional scene before he comes back. But I'd like to see him again. I'd like to see him against maybe a lower-ranked opponent and kind of get his confidence back because he's a really fun fighter to watch, and he's had some really good fights against some really good fighters. Uh, the fight after that was Michael Pre or Michelle Prezeris versus Josh Berkman. Prezeris just swarm Berkman. Berkman's a very tough guy. He's very tough to finish. He he hangs in well. He's very composed. So for Prezeris to dominate like that was very impressive. After the fight, it sounded as though Berkman had retired. He had left his gloves in the octagon. Then that got retracted about 30 minutes later. I'm kind of... I was hoping that Berkman had retired because one of the tough things with MMA is you've got a lot of these guys who don't want to stop fighting even after it's probably time for them to stop. Berkman's not at a point where he's going to be contending for the lightweight or the welterweight belt anytime soon, really ever. So at this point, if you're fighting, you're just kind of fighting to hang on. I don't want to see him take any unnecessary damage at this point. He gets in a lot of really rough fights. He hangs in well. I don't want it to get to the point where he's just getting put out quickly and getting beaten quickly. Hopefully he's got something on the side that he can go to, but I don't want to see him just keep taking beatings like this in the UFC. Uh, next fight was Honey Jace, or Honey Yaya versus Joe Soto. Yaya won the first round. Early in the second round, Yaya and Soto collided on a headbutt that just split Soto wide open. He was just pouring blood out of his head for pretty much the rest of the fight. At that point, Soto came in really aggressive, as though it appeared like he was like, oh shit, I got this cut. I've got to finish this guy or I'm not going to win. He didn't get the finish, but man, did he dominate. And Yaya, it, it looked like after the cut, was trying to get a little more aggressive too, and he may have gassed himself out in the process, but... With that being said, in the th when the third round came around, Yaya was gassed, Soto was coming after him, and it just got ugly for him. Now, at the end of the fight, it was kind of weird, like, just right before the bell, Soto was in mount and kind of had, like, a dry-humping motion on Yaya. Um, didn't seem like he got asked too much about it. I, it. It's a pretty disrespectful move to do. I don't. I didn't like it too much, but 
I mean, what are you going to do about it? Um, next fight was Sergio Moraes versus Davi Ramos. This is a fight that was extremely interesting heading in because it was probably the two best grapplers in the UFC, or at least the best grap- gra- grappler on grappler matchup, being that they were both ADCC champions. Uh, and there was no grappling involved in the fight. It was just a really bad stand-up match between two grapplers. That 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 happens sometimes. Sometimes when you have two great wrestlers, it becomes a really bad boxing match. Sometimes when you have two great kickboxers, they decide, hey, I think I'm a better grappler, so I'm going to take you down. That's kind of what happened with Holly Holm and Jermaine Duran and me, where Holm was trying to wrestle Duran and me up against the fence. Now she wasn't terribly effective in getting her down, but it's the same type of point. Um, Kevin Lee versus Francisco Masaranduba Trinaldo. Trinaldo came out really strong in the first round, definitely won that round, had Kevin Lee rocked, but Lee caught him with a really hard head kick. Lee's got fantastic kicks. And then from there, just really strong on top, really good positioning, ended up getting on his back, got a choke, finished him off. Big big win for Kevin Lee, being that Masaranduba had a seven-fight win streak and was ranked just outside the top ten, so Lee's going to get himself a better opponent next time. And he has a chance to really build his way up the lightweight division, which is just sacked. Um, Cowboy Oliveira had the rematch with Tim Means. Uh, Oliveira got the finish in the second round by rear naked choke and then acted very oddly afterwards, as he seems to do, especially with that uh, Will Brooks fight. Oliveira seems to be... I, I don't know what his deal is, but he, he's kind of got like a weird, weird way of going about business. So I guess big fight for him. Tim Means, tough to lose that fight after the first fight. It went... Relatively well for him. Obviously, the knee at the end that was illegal ended up costing him a chance to win it, but it, it, it's tough. Uh, fight after that was Betch Cohea versus Marion Renault. This fight went to a draw. Betch was given the first two rounds by two of the three judges. I thought Marion Renault won the first round. I wasn't exactly sure why Betch got that first round, but then when the third round came around, Renault landed a big head kick. Betch hung in there tough, but Renault was just putting a pounding on her for five minutes, so understandable to see that being a 10 8 round. Um, fight after that, Ray Borg versus UCA Formiga. Ray Borg just was able to kind of keep a really, really hard pace on Formiga, outstruck him by a little bit, and that was enough to get him the win by decision. Borg obviously looked fantastic against Lewis Smolka. He's getting to the point where he's really close to a title shot. He's one of the few guys, it seems like, in the top 10 that hasn't already fought Mighty Mouse Johnson. So whether you give him to Joseph Benavides, who doesn't have an opponent right now, or whether you just say, "All right, let's hang on. We'll give um, we'll give Mighty Mouse and Wilson Hayes a chance to fight. See how they come out of that, and either give Borg Hayes or give him Mighty Mouse at that point." Uh, Edson Barbosa defeated Benil Dariush by flying knee, and a brutal one at that. That was a really hard one to watch. If you're a Benil Dariush fan, the way he went out, he was out on the knee way before he hit the ground. Uh, Shogun beat John Volante in the third round by a TKO. And Kelvin Gastelum defeated Vitor Belfort by first-round TKO. For me, the big question with the Kelvin and Vitor fight that really is always the big question for me whenever Vitor fights is how did the first few minutes go and what does that say for the rest of the fight? So Vitor Belfort, even with him being off TRT, his hands are extremely fast. He can still land hard, and when he does land, it can cause big problems. He had a few really good flurries early in that fight against Kelvin where he it looked like he had landed or he just barely missed, where it was like, okay, shit, if Vitor does land, he can still win this fight. Kelvin's very tough, but again, Kelvin's still a natural 170. You take a hard shot from Vitor Belfort or a few hard shots with how how hard or how many punches he throws in his combinations, it, it can be a short night for you. So Kelvin was able to hang tough. He got third. He landed his own combination, dropped Vitor, um, got to the ground. Vitor was really good about covering up. It looked as though that fight was about to be over off of the first time that he got dropped, but Vitor maintained his composure, was able to control Kelvin's posture, uh, killed a little bit of time. Kelvin eventually got, or Kelvin eventually went back to his feet. Uh, they went at it a little bit again. Vitor wasn't throwing as much that time around. Obviously, he probably was still feeling it from the first time he got dropped. And again, once you get rocked by someone, you're not going to be as willing to throw wildly on him. Um, Kelvin again landed a, I believe it was a one-two, then a two-three, where he was stepping in really quick on Vitor. Vitor wasn't getting out of the way fast enough, and put him down again. Didn't ref didn't give him that much time this time around, and stepped in. Kelvin got the victory. After the fight, Kelvin took a line from Chael Sonnen and said that he wants to be on a Legends ass kicking tour, and that he's looking at Anderson Silva in Brazil as his next fight. I don't hate that fight for him, to be honest. I think with Kelvin, he's getting to a point right now where either at welterweight or middleweight, wherever he decides to go, 
he's only about two fights away from the title at this point. A lot of the wins that he's had have been really impressive. He had he had that really close fight. I believe it went to a split decision with Tyron Woodley already. Now, granted, he missed weight on that fight. Um, he beat Johnny Hendricks. He beat Tim Kennedy. Now he's beaten Vitor Belfort. You you either give him if he's going to stay at middleweight, you can give him whoever is available. Whether it's like a Luke Rockhold type, you could um, wait until after Weidman and Musasi fight. Give him one of those. Yoel uh, Romero. I don't know what they're going to do with him if they just want to have him sit around and wait for the fight with GSP and Bisping. You can either give him one of those types of guys, or what they're what Kelvin's saying right now is he fights a guy like Anderson Silva, who's towards the top. Anderson won his last fight against um, against Derek Brunson, although one, when I say won, I mean the judges declared that he won. I don't believe that he actually won that fight. Kelvin can do some similar things to Derek Brunson. Now, Brunson's a bigger guy. But I feel like Kelvin's a little more technical when he comes forward. I'd be interested to see how that fight plays out. But if Kelvin Gastelum gets a win over Anderson Silva, that's huge for him, especially if it's in Brazil. That's going to be a high-profile fight. That's the kind of fight where you can springboard him into a number-one contender's fight. And at that point, you're still you're still on that two-fight path. And Kelvin can see himself in a title fight very, very shortly. So I like that for him. For Vitor, it sounds like he's got everything planned out now. He's going to retire after his next fight unless the Legends division comes up. Uh, this Legends division that he speaks of sounds absolutely ridiculous. I'll get into detail on why I think it's a terrible idea, but for what it's worth right now, it sounds like Vitor has one more fight left in him in the UFC and regular MMA, and he'll be sail- sailing off into the sunset at that point. In the feature lightweight bout, Benil Dariush and Edson Barbosa fought. Uh, this was a fight that heading in I had des- des- described as a really interesting fight for me because I believe that with Edson Barboza, a lot of the opponents that give him trouble are the guys who crowd him. He fought really well against Anthony Pettis because Pettis likes to strike from the outside. That was one of his more impressive fights. He did really well against Gilbert Melendez as well. Now, Gilbert was trying to crowd him, but he was mostly doing it with a boxing attack. Um, but Neil Darius has a really good Muay Thai game. He's good at getting in the clinch. He's really strong in the clinch. has good knees, good elbows. Um, really likes to come forward, swing hard take away your space. And I, I was interested to see how Edson Barboza would handle that, whether he would be able to kind of counter that or if Dariush would be able to kind of bully him, get him to the ground especially. And with Dariush's game where he, I believe, I know he went to ADCC in Jiu-Jitsu. I don't remember what he finished. I feel like it was fourth or somewhere pretty high. So he's an excellent grappler. That's the point that I'm trying to get at right there. So it'd be interesting to see if he could actually get Edson down, which is a very difficult task to do what he'd be able to do on top and how he'd be able to handle it. Didn't get him down, but in the first round, very effective at closing the range. Uh, landed a lot of good punches, landed some good kicks, was really good at masking his kicks as far as whether he was going legs, head, body. Uh, Barbosa still landed some pretty hard kicks in that round, no less. He landed some really hard body kicks that I was surprised that Darius was able to eat so well. It looked like they were pretty pretty painful. Um, also landed a couple good leg kicks, but again... Really good showing from Dariush. He won that round. Going into the second, again, a lot of the same stuff was going on. Dariush was, seemed to be slightly ahead of Edson Barbosa. Uh, went for a jab, sort of like a fake jab to set up a takedown attempt. Was a little bit too far out of range, and when he went for it, Barbosa just jumped into a flying knee, cracked him, finished him. I mean, once that knee landed, Dariush was out. He went to the mat. Barbosa sort of landed a punch. It was a pretty light one, but he, he you could tell he knew that Dariush was out. Ref just came flying in, which was, a, which was nice to see that he was in such a rush to make sure that Dariush didn't take any more unnecessary damage. But at that point, fight was over. Barbosa knew that it was over. He didn't really go about throwing any, any unnecessary shots after that. For Barbosa now, with him being a top-five fighter heading into that fight, this definitely keeps him right where he's at. Uh, as far as who you can give him next, it's it's kind of tough at lightweight right now. A lot of these guys are tied up. Eddie Alvarez would be a name that might make sense if he didn't just get the Dustin Poirier fight, but those two train together, so that fight probably, wouldn't, probably wouldn't happen regardless. Um, Tony Ferguson, you'd have to imagine, is waiting on a title shot or waiting on a fight with Khabib. So again, that kind of takes Khabib out of, it, out of the picture as well. Um, Nate Diaz doesn't seem to want to fight anybody except for Conor McGregor, and I can't blame him because the money he's going to make for Conor McGregor probably at least triples whatever you'd make for anyone else. So why fight three top five guys when you can just fight McGregor, who you've already beaten and almost beat the second time? So for him to be very selective about his fights, you get it. And I, I don't expect to see him and Barbosa signing anytime soon. 
So you have to wonder for Edson, who do you, who can you give him at this point? And I feel like, unfortunately, the answer for that is there, there really isn't anyone. Like, the best case scenario for Edson Barbosa is that the Khabib and Ferguson fight somehow gets made for UFC 210. Some, because, because again, for Khabib, he's got Ramadan that he follows. So if you schedule a fight during Ramadan, he's not going to take it. And if you schedule it right after, he's not going to take it because he's not going to be training hard during Ramadan. So that fight has to happen as soon and if it's going to happen at all. If it does, then maybe you say, okay, well, we give Edson the loser of that and then see where he goes from there. But outside of that, it looks like Barbosa is going to have to fight another guy who's ranked below him at lightweight, which is kind of unfortunate because he's really working his way towards a title shot. But the top of the lightweight division right now is really crowded and it's really backed up. For um, Benil Dariush, this is a really tough loss for him. The thing that concerns me is that knockout was so brutal that you have to wonder how he's going to fight when he comes back. Um, when you have guys who get knocked out that bad, sometimes he kind of sits in their head. Now, as a guy like Dariush, who likes to come forward and get really aggressive and isn't exactly the most tight with his striking technique, he gets a little wild at times. That's also what makes him really effective. And if he is too worried to do that because he remembers what happened with Barboza, that's going to make him a lesser fighter. Um, again, obviously, when you get knocked out like that, you're not going to be able to take a shot as well. I don't know to what degree it's going to be, but again, that's also going to be a concern for him. And this this isn't the same as Terry Adam, but you remember Terry Adam with the Edson Barboza fight prior to that, how he was a really good up-and-comer, looked really promising, took that knockout, and was never the same and still isn't the same at this point. So you would hope for Benil Dariush. It sounds like he was okay after the fight. Obviously, in the moment, he was out cold. Sounds like he was okay. Hopefully, he is okay. Uh, I'd like to see him take a good amount of time off after a knockout like that, but after he's recovered and ready to go, hopefully you give him a guy who's maybe outside the top 10. I don't know what the lightweight division is going to look like after what would hopefully be like a six-month or so rest, but he has a lot of potential, and I'd like to see him fight against uh, another top guy and see where he can go and see how he's going to recover from a fight like that. In the co-main event, Mauricio Shogun, who uh, defeated John Volante by third-round TKO, this was a fight where in the first round they both seemed to be rocking each other, and it was one of those things where you're like, at some point someone's going down here. I don't know who it's going to be, but I can't wait to see who it is. Second round calmed down a bit, but third round came around. Um, Shogun caught Volante very smart about how he was able to close the range and pick his shots to finish him off. And once he got him, obviously, it was a big moment for him. This puts him on a three-fight win streak. But the problem that I have here is Shogun, yes, he's 35 years old, which isn't the oldest in fight age, but, man, he's been fighting for a while. A lot of the sparring that he's done in the past has been really hard. From what I've heard, there have been a lot of no- he's been knocked out a handful of times in sparring as well. And when he was out there, he, he didn't look terribly quick like he he still has a lot of the offense a lot of times when you have your older fighters the offense remains but the defense isn't exactly there so a lot of these guys who are in their late 30s late 40s they can still throw a punch they can still hit hard they still know how to grapple but maybe they're not as quick on quick with their grappling maybe they don't take a shot as well maybe they're not as quick to get their head out of the way and the defense is really what becomes their undoing for shogun hua Right now, this is a great moment for him. He's got a three-fight win streak, but if you're going to push him towards the top, you're talking about guys like Alexander Gustafson, Anthony Johnson, Daniel Cormier, John Jones. These are all guys who are going to destroy Shogun at this point in his career. So the question is, if you're here to still fight, okay, fine. Maybe you feel like you got a few fights left in you. But I would hope that this three-fight win streak doesn't propel him into a shot against one of these top guys who's probably going to dominate him, even a Glover Teixeira type. These aren't good matchups for Shogun. So if he's going to keep fighting, you know, hopefully he, he sees, okay, I've only got a couple left. Just give me some of the lower-ranked guys. Give me guys who are outside of the top 10. We can have some tough fights, get a couple wins under his belt, and maybe he can retire on top. But I don't want to see him get pushed back into the title picture because he's, quite frankly, he's just not he's not at a point right now where he's going to be successful there. I don't want to see him taking any more hard shots. It doesn't look like his chin's what it used to be. So hopefully for him, you know, big win with John Volante. He had that win with uh, Corey Anderson as well, which is another guy who looks to be doing really well at light heavyweight. You know, maybe you give him another guy who's outside of that top 10, maybe someone who's looking to push in and kind of let him be the gatekeeper. But to push him into the title picture doesn't make sense to me right now it do- and really doesn't make sense to me ever again, I don't believe. Yes, he's got the offensive game, but he's not going to be able to handle a guy like 
Anthony Johnson, and he takes a shot from Johnson. I mean, anyone taking a shot from Rumble, let's be fair, they're in trouble, but Shogun's chin at this point isn't going to be able to take a very hard shot from him. Uh, Cormier would be a lot of trouble for him. Um, I mean, you name it again, Gustafson's range, that's not a good fight for him. There, there, there really aren't any good fights for him at the top of the division. So, big win for Shogun. Nice to see him doing well. Nice to see him have a win streak going for three fights, which has been the first time since, I believe, back in his pride days. But let's not jump the gun here and assume that he's ready for another run and a final run at the shot, at the belt. He's not. He's done well in the past. He, he obviously was a champion. He beat Machida to win that belt. But his time at the top's over. His time as a top contender is over. And it would be best that we don't try to test it out and see if he can be a top contender again at this point in his career because he isn't going to be. A controversial story coming out last week was that Tony Ferguson did not receive his full show money for the fight with Khabib Nurmagomedov after Khabib had pulled out of that fight. He was scheduled to make 250000 show, 250000 a win. And the exact number that he was given wasn't put out. But they were saying it was somewhere in the six figures. So if we're just going to go with the, the lowest possible end of what was reported, we'll say that he got $100,000 in show money. So there are a few ways to look at this. The first question is, did was the UFC breaking any kind of law and not paying him a show money? The answer to that is no. The UFC legally is in the clear here. They don't have to pay him anything. By law, they they don't they could have given him absolutely nothing. If you look at Khabib, for example, now now Tony's argument again is that he had to spend a lot of money on the camp. He spent all this time, all this work to get to that fight where he was expecting to make a certain amount of money, and now he's not getting any. Well, if you look on Khabib's end, I mean, same type of thing for him. He's getting all ready, and then all of a sudden his body fails on him. So now he's got to deal with the medical bills, too, you'd imagine. Plus, he's not going to make anything off of his camp either. So for, for fighters to put in a lot of money or time for a camp, and then for a fight to fall through, and for them to get nothing, that happens. It's just tough to see with Tony's case where it wasn't his fault that it happened. So it's nice that the UFC did pay him something. It's nice that they paid him six figures. But whether that was the right thing to do, whether they should have paid him his full show money, that that enters a gray area. Legally, legally, what the UFC did was not only okay, but then they went beyond it. If the UFC gave him absolutely nothing, they would have been legally fine. So there are a few things here. It's what's legal and what's ethical. The UFC in no way did anything illegal. They're completely legal. Now, as far as what's ethical, this is where it gets interesting. Now, a point that Tony made and a, a good point at that is that heading into that fight, the UFC had budgeted a certain amount of money for that fight. They had already budgeted away at least the 250000 in show for Tony. So for them to come back and say, oh, well, we don't have the full 250 for you, that's horseshit. And that's a fair point. Now, obviously, I'm not entirely sure what what all goes into their budgets. I'm sure that part of their budget includes a forecast of what they're going to make on the card. Losing the Tony and Khabib fight, I would imagine, brought a big hit to that because you had a lot of a lot of fans from Russia, a lot of fans in general that even even that I spoke to, that they were viewing the Tony versus Khabib fight as the main event, and that was the fight that they were most interested in seeing, really the only one that they cared about seeing for the most part. The card seemed to fall apart to the point where Lando Venata and David Tamer, which was a great fight, but... It, as far as name value, as far as being able to sell, that's not exactly the co-main you would, you would expect. So, for Tony, I, I agree on his end that they had that money stored away, they had it budgeted away, they should be able to give it to him. On the UFC's end, if you're expecting a certain amount of money based off of a projection with the fact that you're getting that fight coming in, and now all of a sudden that fight's no longer there. You don't have Tony versus Khabib anymore and you're going to lose a bunch of pay-per-view sales. You know, maybe that's an adjustment they had to make. But again, it, it feels like if you're the UFC, just for a PR standpoint, it's probably worth paying out Tony his full 250. You've got the money. The bad press right now isn't going to be all that helpful. Uh, I, again, it, it's complicated. I, I don't... I'd like to pick a side on this and say I'm ex I'm totally with Tony. Tony got screwed. Tony should have gotten his 250, or to be able to say, hey, the UFC didn't have to pay you anything. Be happy you got it, at least 100 G's. But I feel like this is a complicated issue. It's good that the UFC is paying something. It's good that they're helping out a little bit. But I can definitely understand why Tony would be upset that he did absolutely nothing wrong. He made weight. He prepared. He did everything he could to be ready for Khabib. Khabib no shows, and now all of a sudden. 
not only is he out of an opportunity to win the $500,000 and then get the interim belt, which then gets him a huge title fight, which guarantees him a title fight with Conor McGregor, but now he's getting about $100,000 and doesn't really get anything for it. And fans, we like to talk about, oh, well, Floyd Mayweather fought for this amount of time and he made $70,000 per second. What a great job it is. The, the time that you spend fighting is just dwarfed by the time you spend training, the time you spend preparing, the sacrifices you make in training. That's really where the money is earned. So Ferguson put in all the work and he's not getting compensated entirely well for the work that he did. And that's tough. In a fun and uh, speculative story coming out, Arian Foster, the former NFL All-Pro All-Star, um, had put out a tweet saying that he would beat up a wolf one-on-one. This drew a lot of attention, including that of Joe Rogan. Rogan actually had him on his podcast. So just to get started, I'll play this l- short little clip of Joe Rogan and Arian Foster talking about whether or not he believes he could beat up a wolf. See, not on Twitter. Now, when you when you said this shit about wolves, right. how serious were you? Were you half serious, fucking around? Well, it's. I mean, I was half fucking around, but it's like... When you start thinking about it and breaking it down, I really, I feel like I can. But like, <laughs> I, I, everybody thinks like I'm talking about, like everybody, like especially on Twitter, like you, they're posting these big ass wolves with the 200 pound plus wolves. I'm like, all right, listen, like those are rare, right? right. So like, I, I'm not the biggest human on earth and you going to give me a picture of the biggest wolf you can find. Like that's not. It's not fair. It's not fair, right? So Google average wolf size. And I feel like if it was, you know. My life was depending on it. Like you have to think like that, right? If you run into a wolf and he's threatening you, and you like, I can't get him, you dead. So, well, I feel like if you had something on you, you'd have more of a chance. Like I would have some sort of a knife, yeah, something. Yeah, I feel like I don't. I wouldn't be in the woods without something. But, but wolves, man, do you know how hard they bite? Yeah, I've know, done, I've done a little researched? research. I've done a little research. Um, I think it's like twelve hundred, five times stronger than a pit bull, right? Right. I think it's 2,500. I think it's 2,500 pounds per square inch. See if you could find I that. I was looking yesterday. Yeah? Uh, I think it said a, a mastiff was stronger than a wolf, which is weird. It wasn't, it wasn't mm. in the top well, five. big fucking but dog. Like, alligators Super. and crocodiles were stronger than that. A gorilla was stronger. The, the gorilla's bite stronger than yeah. that? Wow. Yeah. Nature's a scary place, man. Yeah, that's why I'm surprised that you think you could take a wolf. Well, like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not out here trying to hunt wolves. <coughs> I'm just saying in the event, right. if I catch an avid, like if you look at like a gray wolf, Right, mm-hmm. they they small compared to me. Well, they just shot one that was 182 pounds in Minnesota. Did you see that one? That's a big. Yeah, everybody gave me that picture. The size of a fucking bear. That's a big one. Huge. Yeah, that was a big. That was a big wolf. So if like, that's on this side of the spectrum. If you go towards the middle. So what do you think? Like what size? Like 100 pounds? You can fuck up a 100 pound. I wolf? think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just do, man. I don't... You know you're gonna take some damage, right? Of but you think I... you're gonna yeah, come yeah, out yeah. ahead? I'm not gonna come out <clears> like uh, Superman. I got you know. Like, right. It's gonna hurt. It's definitely gonna hurt. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I might not, I might bleed out afterwards. Who knows? But but you think you win yeah. overall? Yeah, I do. For the fun of it, I figured, hey, might as well break down the fight. See, uh, see what the wolf has going for it. See what Arian Foster has going for him, and kind of come up with a prediction and see who I think would win if they actually did fight. So let's start off with the wolf. What does a wolf have going for it? For one, it's a killing machine. Um, it doesn't have the ability to punch. It doesn't have the ability to kick. But it does have one thing that's very good, and that is biting. So range-wise, not the best, but if it gets inside its range, it is just, it's lethal. So if you're going to have to fight a wolf, you're going to have to be able to keep it out of range, and you're going to have to hope that if it does get a hold of you, that it's not grabbing onto lethal parts. Maybe it's grabbing onto your ankle, and you're still able to fight through it. But again, if a wolf gets its jaws on your ankle, you're still pretty fucked. It's going to be able to do a lot to you, so it's not exactly the best position for you to be in. So if you're looking at the wolf, what does it do well? What it does well is it can charge at you really quick really strong off its back legs, can spring forward really fast, get a good rush on you. Arian Foster, as an NFL as an NFL running back, has had linebackers do that type of thing to him, but again, a wolf is made for that, and uh, Arian Foster is not. Um, outside of that, wolf has that bite. Um, and again, it, it seems really simple, but again, having a wolf that's got short range but it's really fast and getting in, it's almost like if you have an MMA fight and you're fighting a guy almost like you're fighting a midget who's really good at getting inside really quick and has the the ability to throw a jab that's as hard as one of Mike Tyson's hooks, let alone a cross or anything else. It's a tough fight. It's not exactly an easy one. So you'd have to hope that if Arian Foster is fighting a wolf, he's fighting a small wolf. But for Arian Foster, I don't know what kind of martial arts background he has. Now, it sounds like he's saying he would beat up a wolf one-on-one now, so we can't really say 
hey, give him five years, let him train Muay Thai with Joseph Altolini and jiu-jitsu with, I don't know, name your jiu-jitsu master, say, Robert Drysdale. Like, he'd have to fight it now. So a lot of the weapons you'd figure that would work on a wolf, for one, wolves, they, they have pretty pretty thin legs. So if you can get a really hard leg kick on them, there's a good chance that if you have like a Jose Aldo or a Joseph Altolini leg kick and you hit a wolf with it once, that leg might be disabled. And all of a sudden now it's kind of hobbled. It's on three legs. Its base is compromised. Maybe catch him on the other side. All of a sudden he's in trouble. If you catch a back leg, it really hurts his ability to spring forward. Um, as far as kicking it to the head, maybe you can kind of go for like a low line leg kick style. Um, I wonder if a wolf would be able to kind of catch that in his mouth and all of a sudden you're in a bad spot. If you go for that, maybe you want to go with like a front kick and try to catch it underneath the chin. And again, you'd also have to wonder if you charge at the wolf, does the wolf charge back at you? If it does, could you hit it with a flying knee? Maybe like a Yoel Romero style flying knee. Now again, Arian Foster, a 230-pound NFL running back, he's got a lot of power coming from his legs. He's used to driving forward. If he hits a wolf with a flying knee, you'd have to wonder, does the wolf stay conscious? Does it just kind of eat it and come after him right after? Does it get stunned? If it gets stunned, do you then throw a leg kick? You'd figure if you're going to fight a wolf and you're Arian Foster, you're not going to want to grapple it immediately. You can definitely grapple a wolf if you've got in a good position. A rear naked choke will work on it. You get, you'd probably want to go for a body triangle to control the body and get the rear naked choke around. Now, obviously, if it turns back into you and it gets on top of you, big problem, big risk there. But I would say if you're Arian Foster and you're going to fight a wolf, you probably want to start off by throwing some kicks. I'd say, I, again, if he, if he can throw a decent light kick, that might be where you want to start off. You might want to just kind of start off weaken the wolf first, then you go for the head, and then if you kind of got him in a tough spot and he's down, maybe then you finish him off with a choke. But definitely start off with the kicks. Try to use the knees if you have the knees, and then beyond that, it's all up to you. But again, if we're saying the average wolf is like 120 pounds, Arian Foster, 230 pounds, yes, he's got that on his side, but he's not exactly a fighter. It's not like he's been working on fighting his entire life. Wolves, they fight to the death. That's just what they do. Now, granted, in some cases, they'll kind of back off you if they don't have you, and they'll just live to fight another day. But because of the experience... I'm not saying I don't think a human can beat a wolf. I don't think Arian Foster would beat a wolf, though. I'd have to give the edge to the wolf. For the fun of it, I'm going to start giving out some awards on MMA Twitter. So I have a Twitter account. It's at the underscore MMA underscore rundown. And follow a lot of the top guys in MMA, whether it's the fighters, the journalists, so be it. Uh, you get a lot of your usual tweets, whether it's kind of like your Jake Shields and um, Brandon Vera accounts, where it's just... Uh, clickbait or um, click factory articles. Uh, you get your journalists where they're just giving you all the most up-to-date stories. Some of them like to make a lot of political commentaries too. Uh, just a lot of the usual stuff. But every so often you get some good tweets. So every week I'm going to start having a little MMA Twitter award going on. There aren't like any set awards that there have to be every week. It's just going to be when I see some tweets that I find to be very interesting, then I'll kind of make up an award for them as I go and we'll go from there. So the big theme of the first few this week is fake news. So just to give you an idea of where this whole fake news meme comes from, after the election in November when Donald Trump won, one of the main reasons that was brought up by the left as to why he won is because there were supposedly a lot of fake news sites where they were purposely making fake news, like saying, oh, George Soros is paying billions of dollars to get fake protesters to be outraged at Trump or something to that effect. And they were kind of using that as a way where it's like, well, Fake news is why Trump won. We're going to start filtering out fake news. And it was becoming a real issue where it could be a freedom of speech thing. Um, and to counter that, what Donald Trump did, and I think it was actually pretty good on his part, is he started using the term fake news to just throw right back at other reporters that he didn't like. So he'd use it towards CNN, where if they were a little bit off on something or if they were kind of making an, edit an editorial message when it really should have just been reporting the facts, he'd use fake news against them. And right now, the term fake news is just something that's used back and forth almost like as a slander towards journalists as another way of saying you did a very shitty job of journalism what you've done is fake news so the first fake news award of the week will go to mma fighting and sure dog so during the um and this really goes to mma fighting not sure dog during the davi ramos and sergio Moraes fight sure dog and mma fighting were both live tweeting who they had thought won each round they were scoring it and then obviously when the fight ended they put up their score and MMA fighting had been picking Sergio Ramos during a couple of the rounds, which is, or Davi Ramos, not Sergio Ramos, Davi Ramos during a few of the rounds, which isn't necessarily bad. It was a close fight. I can understand why they had him. 
But then when the fight was over, they also said that Davi Ramos had defeated Sergio Marais when Marais had won. Chances are this is really just a typo, not really a big deal, but it was a fun little thing to see where in your in my feed I had them both side by side, so it was kind of funny to see that Sherdog was on the Marais side, um, MMA fighting was on the Ramos side, and once the fight was over, they reported who they had thought won. Uh, next one is the Best Response to Fake News Award. Now, The Onion, obviously, they're a satire. It's not real news. We, I'm not like, oh, well, there goes The Onion making a lie or a fake story. Obviously, The Onion, they do what they do for satire. It's funny. They ran a story where it was talking about how a mother knew that her son was going to be an MMA fighter because he used to beat the shit out of everything in the house. And the picture they used was that of Cody Garbrandt. So Cody Garbrandt got a hold of this and responded to it. And his response was just, this is all bullshit. And that's not even my mama laughing. And then he had like a middle finger emoji. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, and then there's the fake news watchdog award, which goes to front row Brian, who absolutely loves to use the hashtag fake news. And I'm using hashtag fake news in the video as well, because I'm not hashtag fake news and actual fake news can be a little bit different. The hashtag is kind of like more of like the meme side of it. But um, Mark Raymondi had said that Mackenzie Dern missed weight and front row Brian disagreed with that. He said more fake news. The bout agreement she signed when she stepped on the scale said 120. She made 120. Didn't attempt to weigh in at 116. Uh, and this also kind of spurred a longer conversation. I'll just kind of read you through just in case you're listening. Um, Front Row Brian said she didn't miss the contracted weight she signed before stepping on the scale. Mark Raimondi of MMA Fighting said, where did I say she did? This is all in response to Raimondi's article on the topic. Front Row Brian responded, you said unable to make contracted weight. The contracted weight when she stepped on the scale is 120. She made it. Mark Raimondi said, unable to make contracted weight, so it was changed to catch weight. That's what happened. Stop trolling. And then after Front Row Brian responded to that, Jonathan Snowden stepped in and said, hey, do you still work for Flo? Now, that seems like a decent dig at him, but he does still work for Flo, so I'm not exactly sure what the point Snowden was trying to make is. But again, Jonathan Snowden is like the Skip Bayless of MMA, so... If he says something that's factually untrue or doesn't make a whole lot of sense, that's really not a surprise. Um, next award is for bad trash talk. So during the MMA awards, Luke Rockhold had said that he is going to take a detour straight into Michael Bisping's ass. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess that's a that's a term you can use. So Bisping's response was, I guess he's just sexually frustrated. Take it elsewhere. And Luke Rockhold's response to that was, I only put the ass there to accentuate the bitch I put before it. You're pathetic. So I guess he was saying he was going to take a detour into his bitch ass. I, I, again, I don't know. That's, that's some pretty basic stuff that you'd almost feel like you'd be hearing in kindergarten. It's not good at all. On the positive side, this comes from boxing. It was tweeted out by Critic Bo. Victor Ortiz, speaking to Brandon Rios, it said, Can you even speak? Brandon Rios' response was, No, but I can fuck you up. It's funny. It's short. It's to the point, but it's pretty pretty funny. I like that. Uh, the Bad Synergy Award. This is for Joseph Benavidez, who... Now, again, MMA is a little different than most jobs, obviously. If you have a big issue with your boss in MMA or in a fight sport, that can actually sell really well. It can be a positive, whereas in a more corporate setting, it would be a negative. So there was a tweet from MMA and a rapper saying, jo at Jojitsu, which is Joseph Benavidez, Cough, the only one who should be fighting for the belt, Cough, officially has no one to fight in the top 10 of the division, which is referencing Joseph Benavides. They're saying that he was, he's the most deserving of a title shot and he doesn't even have a fight and the other top guys are all booked up. And Joseph Benavides' response was, shit is fucking ridiculous, and then tweeted at Mick Maynard. Mick Maynard, of course, is his boss and the matchmaker. So, again, not a great idea, not a great look to be ripping on your boss on Twitter in general, but to rip on your boss on Twitter and then tag your boss into the comment that you were ripping him on. Not a smart move. So hopefully Benavides doesn't bite himself or shoot himself in the foot here too much, but that wasn't the smartest tweet on his part. Um, the Trigger and Tyrant Award. This one, it's it's not a big deal. It really shouldn't be a big deal. Hopefully it gets swept under the rug because it really should. Guillermo Cruz of MMA Fighting had tweeted out that Kelvin Gastelum says he's no, he knows how to beat the UFC champion. And instead of typing Tyron Woodley, he wrote Tyson Woodley. That's a difference of an R to an S, which 
aren't terribly far apart on the keyboard. They're both on the left side of the keyboard. Honest mistake, but knowing how Tyron Woodley likes to make everything about race, maybe he sees this and thinks, oh, would you think I was Tyson Woodley if I was white? So, again, I don't know. This, this, this shouldn't be a big deal, but anytime something kind of comes off weird with Tyron Woodley, you never know how he's going to take it. And the final award of the week is the Questionable Retweet Award. So Julie Kedzie has a habit of retweeting a lot of stuff. Most of it's uh, left-wing talking points. A lot of them don't involve a whole lot of logic. Your typical stuff like, hey, here's someone who was in the KKK who likes something that conservatives like. Therefore, if you like it too, you're a KKK supporter. Just that kind of stupid bullshit. But this time around, she retweeted an article asking whether you should spit or swallow or spray it in the air like a tiny whale. So... Mostly, most of the people I follow are MMA follows, so to have that pop up on my feed, thought it was worth mentioning in here. Over the weekend, Mackenzie Dern fought at LFA against Catherine Roy, or Catherine Wah, however she likes to pronounce it. She is a um, former Golden Gloves boxing champion. It was Mackenzie Dern's third pro fight. Now, prior to the fight, there was some controversy over her. The fight was supposedly was supposed to be at 115 pounds. Then they changed the contract to 120. Dern still missed 120 initially and had to go back a second time to hit it. Um, in the fight itself, it wasn't exactly the prettiest fight. Dern got the victory. She won the fight on the feet, really, because she wasn't able to get the fight to the ground in the first and third. Was able to get it to the ground in the second, got to mount, had some good positions, almost had a triangle at one point, but never finished. So that puts her at 3-0 and right now. And there are a lot of questions as far as, or really even claims, I should say, that Mackenzie Dern could be the next Ronda Rousey in female MMA. Uh, as far as her having a very specialized skill set, a skill set that's going to be really tough for a lot of girls to deal with. And also having the looks. Now, obviously, Mackenzie Dern, I, I would argue, is more more pretty than Ronda Rousey, but that's neither here nor there. I don't believe that Mackenzie Dern is going to become a superstar in MMA, though. I think she can become big. I mean, you look at a girl like Paige Van Zandt, she's not a champion at strawweight. She's become huge. Mackenzie Dern can become really big, too. But as far as being the next Ronda Rousey, that train has passed. So what made Ronda Rousey huge, on top of her attitude that was really polarizing, that you had a lot of girls where it's like, I love her attitude. It's kind of like the strong woman attitude. You know, don't be a do-nothing bitch. She got all that going for her. And plus, her fighting style was really good, too. She finished girls really quickly. A couple things Ronda Rousey has had that Mackenzie Dern does not have right now. For one, the competition level is much different now. Girls are getting a lot better. When Ronda Rousey was starting, she was fighting a lot of one-dimensional girls or girls who were MMA fighters but only trained for a few years. So their few years of training in a few different arts wasn't able to stack up against Ronda's lifetime of judo. And with Ronda's lifetime of judo, what was so effective about her judo abilities, it wasn't that she was just good at the takedown aspects of judo, but she also had the submissions. A problem that Mackenzie Dern has, and it really showed in this Catherine Roy fight, is that Mackenzie's very good on the ground, but she's not the best at taking it to the ground. So for her to be dominant in MMA, she's going to have to be able to take a lot of these girls to the ground who are now better at defending takedowns than they used to be. And really, they're a lot more skilled in the feet than she's going to be. So that's going to be tough for Mackenzie Dern to deal with. And on top of that, even when she gets girls to the ground, she's not exactly... She doesn't have one submission that... She goes to it right away and she can get the finish immediately. She's very good at a lot of different things, but she's not at a point where she can just wrap everyone up and finish them quickly. She's had a few of her fights go to the ground early, and she hasn't been able to get the finish. She's only won one fight by submission so far. The other two were decisions. She had a Golden Gloves boxer on the ground in the last fight, who's nowhere near her in pedigree and jiu-jitsu, wasn't able to get a finish there. So if you're looking at how Mackenzie Dern is going to do against better, whether you're going to look at strawweight, flyweight, even if she moves up to bantamweight, which I don't think she ever will, if you if she's fortunate enough to be able to get the fight to the ground against a lot of these girls, it doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to be able to finish them. If she can't finish them, then she's going to have to keep taking them down and dominating them until she gets to a point where she can finish them. And the takedown game isn't really there right now. But again, if you're looking at who's at the top, is she going to be able to get close the range on Yoani and Jacek right now? No. Is she going to be able to do that anytime soon? Probably not. Is she going to be able to beat someone like Claudia Gadelia, who isn't as good on the ground, but can still move forward, a really aggressive striker, good striker, and can dominate the position, can keep um, 
can keep Mackenzie off her if need be. I, again, I, I don't see her winning a lot of the fights against the top girls at at uh, strawweight right now. Now, as far as her making strawweight, that's another question. In jiu-jitsu, she competed around 129. It seems pretty clear that if the UFC had a 125 division, then all these weight-cutting issues wouldn't be issues because she'd be fighting at 125 regardless. You'd like to see the UFC open up a 125 division. I think right now we're seeing a lot of interim belts. In a position where WME is making these interim belts, you'd have to imagine that the idea of just making a real belt at 125 makes a lot of sense, especially since they're going to be the stars there. Now, if you do have a 125-pound division, you're probably going to get Joanna and Jacek to move up to it. You're probably going to get Valentina Shevchenko to move down. And if these are the top contenders of that division, you know, Claudia Gadelia probably moves down as well. But if again, if these are the top contenders of that division... I don't see any point where Mackenzie Dern's game is going to be good enough to beat them. You know, obviously if she gets any of these girls to the ground, she's got a great chance to finish, but can she get them to the ground? Can she improve her game enough to the point where she's eventually able to do so? I don't exactly think so. There, there are a lot of different ways you can go about jiu-jitsu. There are people who are really good in jiu-jitsu where they get the takedown, they dominate from the top, they're really heavy top players. There are people who play really well off their back. There are people who kind of kind of good at both but don't really specialize in anything. Mackenzie's not the type where she just takes people down and dominates from top. That's more of like a Davi Ramos type, for example, who um, had fought Sergio Marais on this card. Leading up to the UFC Fortaleza, UFC Fight Night 106 card, and even more so afterwards, Vitor Belfort was making some noise talking about how he wants to start a League of Legends, a Legends League, a, a Legends division, so so to speak, for the UFC a way for older fighters to continue fighting even after they're out of their prime. He was saying that at his age, it's really tough to fight for five rounds, to deal with, you know, preparing for a 25-minute fight, having the 60-second rests. It's really tough to keep up with. So for him to continue fighting, and he really thinks that there are a lot of older fighters who'd be able to get back into it or older fighters who were hanging on too long that could transfer over to it that it'd be a great chance for them to keep going. And he thinks that it could revolutionize, as he says, revolutionize the sport. Um, I hate the idea. And the first, I'll, I'll explain why I hate the idea. I think the big thing is when you're looking into a business idea, really business in general, the common process that you go by is you look for a problem that consumers or that people are having and you solve that problem for them. And then in solving it, obviously they're going to want to pay you money. You get paid money, then you expand, you, you go on from there. In this case, consumers aren't like, oh God, you know, I'm really sad that 40-plus-year-old MMA fighters aren't fighting anymore. I really wish I could see them. It's just so bad that they can't fight anymore. No, this isn't a problem that consumers are having. This is a problem that the fighter is having. His idea is an idea that he's identified a problem of the employee and is trying to create a solution that helps the employee. He's not solving a problem for the market and looking for a solution for the market. This is all for him. It's all for people like him. So if you're an MMA fan... Why are you going to buy an, buy a ticket to an event like this? Why are you going to buy a pay-per-view for anything like this? Why would I want to go from seeing a full-contact MMA fight to seeing some old guys who aren't going to be really as explosive as good, the consequences aren't going to be as dire, and just watch that fight just because they ha used to have a name or had a name that was big? I mean, sure, there's a nostalgic effect to it, but I feel like a grappling match between Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell at Metamoris or at EBI now would be just as interesting to me as an old man's MMA fight under Vitor's rules. Now, if you're looking at Vitor's rules, here are the things that he had talked about. So there'd be no elbows or knees. The rounds would be three minutes. There would be 30 seconds on the ground before they go to standing, which really doesn't make sense to me because you'd figure that at the older age, the grappling exchanges would probably be the best part of it. And plus, a lot of these older guys have taken a lot of brain damage in the past. You'd probably rather see them grapple, to be quite honest, than see them hitting each other with... They're bigger gloves. And then also 90-second um, breaks between rounds instead of the three minutes. So again, longer breaks for fans, which, again, you're, you're looking for a solution for the athlete, not for the fan, not for the consumer. These, these rules, not only is it the combatants wouldn't be as good as regular UFC, but now you're saying that the rule set wouldn't even be as exciting. So uh, again, why would I want to watch this? Why would fans want to watch this? It's just for the names. It's just for the people competing in it. And it's nice. I, I, I'd like to see them do well. I'd like to see guys like Vitor Belfort. Obviously, when you're an athlete, 
even at a college level, even at a high school level, so to speak, like if you're used to it as a high school student being an athlete and all of a sudden you go to college and now you're not an athlete anymore, it, it sort of feels weird, especially when your season comes around. If you're a professional athlete, especially, I mean, that's what you've been doing your whole life. That's what you've been developing at. That's your career. Once you're done with that, where do you go from there? It's kind of tough. Do you go back to college? Do you try to start a career at 40 that most people start in their early 20s? You know, it's a tough transition. So for Vitor, you can definitely tell that he's at a point now where it's like he's looking to transition in his career, but fighting's what he knows. It's not like he's going to become a high-powered lawyer or high-powered um, accountant. You know, fighting is where he's can offer the most value in the marketplace. So I understand why he thinks that's the best place for him to go from here. But when you're looking for something that you can put in put into the market, a, a product, a show, this isn't it. You know, fans... Again, sure, it'd be nice to see all these guys fight, but the biggest problem for all these older fighters, too, is brain damage. So you're going to have them still hitting each other? That's not going to help. We've looked at, obviously, one of the worst fights that we've had in recent memory, or one of the worst matchups a lot of fans felt, was Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock at Bellator. And that was under regular MMA rules. I mean, think about how much that fight sucked, but then make the rules even worse and even like more slowed down, give them bigger gloves, you know? Make sure they can't grapple for more than 30 seconds. Like, that's not that's not interesting. It's not going to make for good fights. And after a little while, people are going to realize, oh, these fights kind of suck. Like, yeah, it's cool to still see my old childhood hero still fighting, but the fight sucks. And now you almost feel worse about them. Like, it's almost better when you have a great fighter retire on top and you think of them as that for all of eternity as opposed to them fighting again afterwards and just looking really bad. Like, could you imagine if Michael Jordan decided to come back into the NBA today or came back into some Legends League and was really slow or was getting crossed up and missing a bunch of shots and his jumper went away. You know, that that would kind of affect how you think of Michael Jordan, even though it's not really a fair way to think about it. I think for all these fighters, yeah, it's tough. You've been a fighter your whole life. You, you've been a professional athlete. It's tough to transition, but it's something that you got to do. And creating a league that serves your best interest, not the best interest of the fans, it's not going to be a business success. It's not going to do you any favors in the long run. If you feel like you're no longer going to be able to compete at the top level of MMA, then it sucks, but you got to move on.